This episode is brought to you by Health Carousel. Health Carousel provides world-class staffing and workforce management solutions designed to improve lives and make healthcare work better. Failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. A blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Hi, everyone. Today, I am interviewing Dr. Espinola. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Clinical Psychologist at UC Health. Hello, Annie. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you here today. Um, to start off, I'd like to know a little bit about you. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Of course. Well, so I'm originally from Argentina. I grew up in the south of Argentina, in Patagonia, like very, very far away, uh, near penguins. And um, I have two younger siblings, one brother and one sister. My dad was a civil engineer and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And um, I was born during a, a dictatorship that ended when I was about three years old. So growing up in, in a new democracy definitely like shaped the person that I, I became. So it's uh, because a lot of people around me uh, just encouraged me to recognize and embrace my freedoms. So, for example, when I was uh, three years old, I started taking art classes with this like very funny looking professor. Like he was um, bald on top. I had like curly long hair on the sides and had like funny looking glasses. And uh, he was a brilliant and very talented artist. So he would like teach us classes, teach us classes in this art school, which uh, was a rundown building in a park across the beach. And he would tell us, okay, now climb to the trees and see how the world looks from up there. So he encouraged us to think freely and to create without limitations. To, see, to use art to look at life in different ways. It was like incredible. So that was very much like a big part of my childhood. So we will like paint the floors and the walls and uh, which is like, um, I will get out of those classes just like full of paint over my hair in my face. And I remember loving going there. And then at home, I would like get clean up and I spent a lot of time with my grandma who also encouraged me a lot to engage with the arts, but in a different way. So it's just more like, listening to classical music and opera. I also love to read and write. So I started writing for a newspaper when I was 10 years old and had a radio show at 12 and I was in three documentaries. And yeah, so I really love journalism. So I like the idea of you doing this interview <laughs> because I love to see young people engaging in, in media. So you were in three documentaries. Yes. That's amazing. What type of documentaries? <laughs> yeah, so the first one was about penguins. So um, penguins that had been affected by an oil leak um, in the ocean. So we went there to basically save the penguins, so clean them up. And then we taught children about like how to take care of them. So that documentary was uh, shown in the schools at the time. Then the second one had to do with being a child journalist. So that was really fun. So what they did was just like to, you know, show what they what we did as child journalists. So it was just writing for the newspaper, going to interview people and going to the news. And and the third one was kind of like a documentary after 20 years. So 20 years after the program started. So they used footage that they had of me as a child and of other kids. And they did the documentary when I was already here. 
Wow, that is yeah. so cool. When did you move to um, the United States? So I moved to the United States when I was 20 years old. And um, yeah, so at the time I had like nothing. I had like $500. I didn't speak English. I, uh, I didn't know anybody. It was a very, very difficult experience. I bet. Um, so what motivated you to become a clinical psychologist? So um, I, I first wanted to be a journalist. And I started thinking about psychology after learning all these stories of survivors of violence. So people who suffered trauma. And as a journalist, I could interview survivors and raise awareness about human rights violations. And that's an, an amazing thing. <laughs> that's why I'm so passionate about the freedom of the press, because of the ability of the press to bring awareness to human rights violations and shape public opinion, eventually public policy. But I got to a point where I wanted to do more. So I felt like I wanted to conduct interventions to treat survivors of trauma. So at 17, I moved from my town to the big city, Buenos Aires, and I began studying psychology. So I studied there for, for three years. And, and after three years, that's when I came here and I had to start from scratch. So I, I taught myself English using a dictionary, a highlighter, and, and an old TV with closed captioning. So I would watch a show, write down the words, that I couldn't understand and then looked them up in the dictionary. Uh -huh. So at the beginning, I, I worked as a nanny and then in real estate. And eventually I went back to school and took classes in it. So, so several years went by when I couldn't go back to school. But eventually I, I did. I went to a community college and then I went to NOAA Southeastern University and got my bachelor's, master's, and doctorate in psychology. And then I went to Boston University to focus on multicultural psychology. And then I went to Harvard to focus on the psychology of women and trauma. So it's, it's basically the, what I love is intersection of multicultural issues, diversity, and trauma. Those are my three areas. What do you help most of your patients with? Mostly trauma or what would you say? Yeah, I, definitely. So most of my patients have experienced trauma. Most of my patients um, survive multiple adverse childhood experiences. So we call that ACEs. So that includes physical abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, having your parents uh, getting a divorce or getting separated, seeing a parent abuse drugs or alcohol, seeing a parent abuse the other parent. So um, all of that can be very traumatic and, and it can really change the way your brain gets wired. So it can affect you for the rest of your life. And that's what I, I do. It's just kind of like I, I listen to people's stories. I see in what way trauma has impacted them. And then I work with them to, you know, reduce those symptoms. Many times get rid of them altogether and start a new life, like the life that they deserve to leave. So what is trauma? Trauma could be a, a very deeply and disturbing experience. And that changes depending on like who is experiencing it, right? So sometimes it could be two siblings living in the same exact situation, but one, per, one of those siblings experience that situation as very, very traumatic and the other one doesn't. Okay. If I was experiencing trauma or having hardships during COVID right now, what would you say that could help me? Well, the very, very first thing that I do during a first session with patients is like, I go through the basics of self-care. 
So I ask people, okay, so how many hours are you sleeping? You know, because like we want people to be sleeping at least eight, so about eight hours. What kind of food you're eating? How many times do you eat? Because we want to make sure that they are balanced meals, that they are nutritious. How often they exercise? Because we want to want them to exercise regularly. We want them to socialize and be connected with others regularly. So those are the things that I put. So I put attention to at the very beginning. Because if you target those things, you usually see results like quicker in the therapy. So, um, and I do have a skills to help them go through that. So it's very, very common that people, when they're very stressed, their sleep gets impacted because they are up at night thinking about what happened during the day or what happened in the past, or they worry about the future. So they lose the sleep. That's pretty common. So what I did was just to... To be able to help more people during this crisis, I created a YouTube channel. <laughs> so I basically, every video, so I have a whole playlist with that's called Psychoeducation and Wellness in English. And there I have tips that can help people sleep better and can help people survive a crisis. So can help them deal with panic attacks or wasting thoughts. So what I did was just like to think about, okay, what are the most common things that people come to me for? What are the most urgent things that people come to me for? And that's where I started doing the videos. You know, that's really helpful, especially during COVID. Everyone's looking at their screens. And um, <laughs> speaking of screen time, have you noticed any incline of like mental health issues or depression coming from social media yeah so um, we have seen an increase in mental health uh, disorders among teenagers and young people over the last decade and it seems that there's a correlation with social media use now there are other studies that look more specifically to yeah, more at the details what how exactly these teens are using social media so they found that if you're already struggling with mental health issues and then you use social media to look at how well others are doing, then you're going to feel like worse and worse about yourself, right? But if you, for example, use social media as a way to advocate about causes that you care about, like a lot of teens are advocating for anything that has to do with climate change or uh, advocate for LGBT rights or women's rights, I mean, they, they can get this sense of empowerment and the ability to have a platform, the ability to reach millions of people at one at once, um, that could be, you know, that could be beneficial. So it just depends on like, you know, how often you're using it and for what reason. You know, I've noticed with a lot of my girlfriends and a lot of people I know, like I feel like there's an increase of body dysphoria because of social media and Photoshop. Like everyone's following celebrities like Kylie Jenner and all these models who use Photoshop and they're thinking this is what like women are supposed to look like today and this is what I look like. But I feel like that's also affecting teenage girls' mental health today. So, yeah. So what, one thing that I work on with patients is to make sure that they understand that nobody or no situation can make you feel in any specific way. So the fact, the, the fact that you're just looking 
add models, for instance, doesn't have to make you feel bad about yourself, right? So it's, it's all about how you interpret that situation. If you are looking at it and your interpreter is like, okay, those are models that they're, you know, they have to work really, really hard to look like that. Uh, and that's not the goal that I have in my life. I have other priorities. Then you're not going to feel negatively about it, right? So like, so the, one of the main points of therapy is to make sure that you find the power within you to see, to look at the world and to look at the world in the way that you want to look at it. Yeah. After a while of using social media, I kind of saw it that way. Like, I kind of stopped following the models on Instagram. I'm like, this isn't what I should be using my social media platforms for. I feel like this year, everyone's kind of shifting from using social media as like posting like photos with their friends and they're starting to post more like promoting mental health and promoting like environmental crises in politics now, I feel like. Like on Instagram, yeah. for example. Right, right. I feel like a lot of people, this is what I do during the week, in order to get stuff done, I feel like I need to delete my social media accounts because I feel like I'm endlessly just looking at posts of other people and then time flies and you're like, I didn't do anything for that amount of time. And then it adds stress to the teenager and then they're like, I need to get my homework done. I need to get my test done. What do I do now? And now they're stressed. And I feel like social media, I might be wrong, but I feel like social media can create anxiety because it adds so much stress to your life more than you would think. So I think it's all about making sure you remain in control. Mm -hmm. So... So asking people, for instance, to like step away completely from social media is not realistic, right? That's not going to happen. And actually, I wouldn't want people to do that, especially during a pandemic. <laughs> we cannot see people face to face. So like to ask them also to stay away from people in social media, that would be too much. And, and in reality, I actually encourage people to stay connected with others via social media. But so there are helpful and unhelpful ways use social media so some unhelpful ways are to just like like you said you know like go and look at things like like endlessly over and over and over and just like use it as a way to distract yourself forever you know just to avoid responsibilities that's unhelpful so one thing that I, I usually I talk about is like a cat video. So <laughs> I do like some uh, cat videos with my kitty cat here. And uh, because they actually did a study where they said that, you know, watching cat videos can actually help you reduce the stress. Yeah. And, and, and they found that, yes, you do procrastinate, which is true. You procrastinate by making cat videos or, or watching cat videos. But they said that the, the pros outweigh the cons. Okay. If you manage it to a, you know, to a reasonable degree, obviously. Like if you spend all day watching your videos, that's not going to be helpful. But let's say that you are, I don't know, you've been studying already for two hours and you're getting, you want like some kind of break. You can watch one or two of cat videos just to lift you up, you know, like get a break and then continue, right? Like, so it's just like bits here and there, awesome. All day, not good. So um, your phone can tell you like how much, you know, you're spending on social media. 
some phones that even like send you alarms like hey <laughs> it's been five hours yeah. <laughs> so like that so you can use your phones you know just to make sure that you're not overdoing it um you also want to make sure that so distracting yourself can be a helpful coping skill because the brain you cannot be on things all day every day yeah. you can't be working all day every day you can't be standing all day every day and um, so it's helpful because if you don't take breaks voluntarily, the brain will take those breaks for you. So there's going to be a time when you're just not going to be able to process information. It's just going to go like daydreaming and like it's spacing out. So it's better if you say like, OK, I'm going to study for like, let's say an hour or even if, if you cannot do that, I don't know, 10 minutes, 15, whatever you can. And then you stop, take a break, voluntary break but limited break. So the good thing with the videos is like, you know how long it's going to take. So, you know, it's like two minutes, five minutes. So you choose a video that is reasonable. And then after that, and you tell yourself after that video, I'm going back to whatever I was doing and that's it. Right. So don't use this for, for limited distraction, not avoidance. Have you seen um, a lot more cases of ADD and ADHD lately, like an increase? I personally don't specialize on, I mean, I do get a lot of patients who mm -hmm. have it, but um, I can't talk about whether there is an increase or not on that. So to go back to what I was saying about the stress, anxiety, and um, panic attacks that teenagers have today, is there anything you can add on that? I feel like, I feel like today like we don't know if we see someone having a panic attack and I feel like some people you can't even tell if they're having a panic attack because it's inside like what what would you do in that situation yeah so panic attacks are very very common and the good news is that they are really easy to treat they're a lot easier than people think so the thing is like the very first thing that you want to understand is how the fight or flight response works in your brain. So we are born with this uh, fight or flight response that is uh, that help us survive life-threatening situations. So for instance, if we were to hear really, really loud noise, you know, we are going to like get ready to either run away from a potential threat or defend, defend ourselves from an attacker or maybe hide in a safe place. And, and then if someone tells us, okay, no, that was the construction next door, you're safe, we shut down the alarm and then keep moving forward, right? So, so that alarm is kind of like it activates your body to be ready to, to fight or flight a situ or, or run away from a situation. The problem is that, you know, that's a very primitive response. So like if you think about cavemen and cave women, they would use it to run away from tigers or like fight another tribe or something like that. So um, the, the issue is that we have evolved and our stressors have changed. So we don't longer have to run away from tigers. We have to face the stressors that have to do with school or with like problems with friends or family, parents and all that. So, um, so those, those stressors, can be difficult to, to deal with. However, they are not life-threatening. So we really have to make sure that in moments when we feel that the anxiety goes up and we feel overwhelmed, to kind of like take a deep breath, take a step back and ask yourself, like, am I going to die from this? 
is anyone going to die from this? Okay. So let's say like you're having an exam. So it's pretty common to have panic attacks as you, that you get closer to the exam date or you're applying for it to go to college and you need to submit your applications or you're going on your face first date with someone that you're, you're really excited to see. I don't know, you know, like different things that could be like, you know, very stressful in the moment, but you want to ask yourself like, yeah, sure. It's a stressful, but it's not life threatening. So the amygdala in your brain is getting um, mistakenly activated, I guess. So we need to shut it down. And the way to shut it down quickly, I mean, I so I teach grounding skills for that. So I, so I do have a video that specifically talks about grounding skills and how to use it or how to survive a crisis. So those are really um, quick skill, skills to use. I can tell you one, for instance, that I use in session when a person is in session with me and it starts to feel very overwhelmed, something that I ask them that I do is like, I ask them to, um, well, I bring a glass of cold water. I also bring a, a nice cube and I wrap it around a paper towel. And then I ask them like, just place your, place this on your cheeks, place this on your, on your forehead and on your neck for a few seconds. So that's going to lower the temperature of your face. What would be one more example of a grounding skill? So one, ex one grounding skill, one of the most common grounding skills requires to like look at your five senses. So you said, okay, let me, let me see like five things that I can see. So you bring attention, awareness to five things that you can see. So like if I'm like doing a session over the phone, I can ask the person, you're like, tell me five things you can see. So they go through, you know, their room and tell me, and then like, tell me like four things you can touch. So it could be like a blanket, the a cold glass. And during, those pro during that process, what they are doing is that they are engaging their senses. They are bringing their attention to the present moment. So, and then I, I ask them like three things they can hear and two things they can smell. So like it's, all five senses so um, that can really help people like bring attention to the present moment because the way that i explain it is just if you think about it most moments during the day are not as stressful at all like you know me looking at the window not as stressful like seeing my cat not as stressful like so you could go on and on and most moments are not as stressful unless you're living in an abusive home or things like that but if you're safe most moments are not as stressful. Stress comes up usually when you think about the past, when you think about the future, when you make negative comments or uh, have negative thoughts about yourself or other people. That's when the stress comes up. So if you were to place your attention more in the present moment, then your stress can go down. You know, I struggled a lot freshman and sophomore year. And... I kept like pushing it off like, oh, I don't need to get help. I don't need to like get my parents involved and all that other stuff. And it kind of dug me into a bigger hole. It's kind of like procrastinating. You're like, oh, I can put off this work. But instead the work just keeps piling up and piling up. And so I realized once I did get help, your problems start to kind of, you get the help you need. and it's not as scary or stressful as you think it's going to be once you get that help. And I'm thinking if someone needs help and they don't know how to ask for it or they're scared to, 
Like, what do you think they should do? Yeah, so I think, well, I think it depends, it depends on like, what is the level of the stress they are experiencing? So I often ask people, you know, like from zero to 10. So zero is the stress that my cat experiences because he doesn't have to pay bills. He doesn't have to work, go to work or school or anything, right? He has zero stress. Uh, 10 level of stress means that like you are so stressed that you have been thinking about doing something that can be harmful to yourself or another person, okay? From zero to 10, if you are eight or, or higher, or uh, you have been having clear thoughts of harming yourself or another person, you have to call one of the, the crisis hotlines. So there's a 1-800 number that I believe you're going to put on the notes. And then there's also another crisis number for LGBT youth. That, and there's another one for veterans. So, so yeah, so it's, it's, really, it's really fundamental that you reach out. And then there is a main SAMHSA line that it can also uh, give you referrals. Like no matter where you live in the country, you know, they can tell you um, where, where you can go for help. Well, thank you so much for all the advice and help. And I think what you do is so incredible. And I'm glad that you were able to join me today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. When I first started the podcast, I wasn't sure where it would take me. I just knew I was meant to do it. Don't ask me why or how. I just really knew. And since starting it three years ago, I've wondered how else can I use what I've learned in the episodes and teach others? Over the years, I've coached executives and more recently, young professionals and college students. In response to that need, we are offering Move Forward Crew, and it takes our guest best practices, the Enneagram assessment, to help them understand their personal motivations. They will challenge unhealthy and limiting beliefs. We use neuroscience to create new healthy habits, and finally, they'll create a Move Forward plan. So if your child is struggling and you'd like to give them the tools to get unstuck and face their fears, you can sign them up for a 10-week course. More information, go to failforwardpod.com. I want to thank our sponsor, Health Carousel, and everyone behind the scenes, especially Adrian Donica and the team at Gwyn Sound. Also, please find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Fail Forward Pod.